Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 265, recorded September 8th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 100. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Pro, with prices starting at $10 a month. All your office PCs can be backed up safely and automatically. For a free trial or to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your online security and privacy. And the man of the hour, of course, the great Steve Gibson, guru at GRC.com, creator of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, creator of the first and namer of spyware and the first anti-spyware program. And uh, he's done so many great things like Shields Up. And he's, uh, he, we've been doing this show for, we're in our sixth year now. And we our, are. Our 100th Q&A. <laughs> yeah, this is a, another milestone uh, episode. Q&A number 100. Wow. So, yeah. When it, so we started doing Q&As, uh, let's see, that would be four uh, years, two ago. years ago. Uh, two years ago? Two years ago, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that's been a nice thing because it gives you a chance to elaborate on some of the things that you bring up in other shows. Yes, uh, sometimes our listeners will remind me of something that I that I actually had in my notes, but I forgot to mention. There's one like that. Uh, sometimes they'll follow up on stuff that I mentioned and give us feedback on their own experiences. We got a couple like that. Uh, sometimes there's some confusion that's got that sort of remained for one reason or another that I see a number of people having. So I'll just choose one typically confused person, not that they're, you know, standing alone and, and work on resolving that. So it gives, it sort of closes the loop and gives our, our listeners some chance to participate. I believe it's four years, Steve, if we've done a hundred and we do 25 oh. a year. <laughs> right, 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 right. We've been right. doing it a long time. That would be four years. That'd yep. be four years. I beat him in math. You got it. <laughs> That's all right. I've already had my coffee. So uh, we will get to our questions. We have uh, 10 good questions from our listeners. And by the way, you can always go to grc.com slash feedback if you've got a question for our next time. But uh, before we get to the questions, we always like to see what's going on in the world of security. And and we start with updates to uh, major programs. Well, and, you know, I didn't pick up on what I guess is an update to Safari. Just happened. just I'm seeing, yeah, I'm seeing it here, 5.0.2. When I turn my Mac on in order to fire up Skype for this connection, it says, oh, we got some updates for you. It's like, uh, whoops. So uh, we'll have news about that next week since I don't know what it is that they did. They just did it uh, yeah. somehow underneath my um, sneaky my security window. And it looks like iTunes and iWeb and iPhone configuration utility, which probably is nothing other than just new features for the new iPhone stuff, right. I would imagine. Of course, imagine. iTunes 10 came out uh, last Wednesday, 
with mm-hmm. the uh, Apple announcement of the new iPods and uh, and their new social network, Ping, which is built in iTunes. <laughs> but you <laughs> only turn some... on your computer every week, so <laughs> you didn't see that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, we do have some news, however. Um, we're... We have talked a couple times about the the concern over this DLL hijack new problem. Uh, shortly after it became publicly known, it began to get exploited. So we are now seeing exploits in the wild. Last week, I talked about Microsoft having a, a security update with some confusing-seeming settings. So I didn't feel comfortable making a blanket recommendation that people jump on this because it, it, it seemed to me like what Microsoft did was a little strange. Well, Microsoft has since added one of their little fix-it buttons to the same page, making it easy for people to make these registry settings after installing the security update. So a number of users have experimented with it. I have also. It's caused no one any trouble. So I think at this point, given that that Microsoft is not going to be making any fundamental changes to Windows, that is, I don't foresee anything happening except maybe with the next second Tuesday of the month security updates, they'll just roll this this patch in so that this becomes a a built-in feature of Windows, still I'll be surprised if Microsoft makes this change themselves. If if things get bad enough, they may do so. But for security-conscious, aware listeners like those who follow this podcast, um, given that I've seen nothing negative from it, I do think it's time now to, to have this change made. So... This is Microsoft's knowledge base article 2264107. So support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 2264107 will get you to this page. There you can download a version specific for whatever version of Windows you're running update to Windows, which you have to install first. That is, it, it, the, the registry settings only have new meaning when this update has been installed and is in place. And then there are, there are four different settings which you can choose between. Um, z- the setting zero doesn't change anything. The setting of one blocks DLLs from loading if from the current working directory, if that is set to a web dav folder, that is to a essentially to a, a shareable folder accessible over the internet, which is probably the largest concern and the, the biggest threat. The setting of two increases the coverage a little bit. It's not only web dav, but also any other remotely located shared folders. So that's probably not as big a concern, but it is what Microsoft recommends. It's what many of our listeners have have chosen that is like the strongest level of protection. It's what I've been running with no negative effects. So 
That's what I would recommend people do. And as always, for a few days after you make this change, sort of keep in mind that this is what you've done. I don't expect to see a side effect because the the normal order that Windows searches for DLLs is to first look in the directory from which the application was loaded. Now, there's been some confusion about this. And in fact, we'll, we'll, one of the Q&A questions is, is on this issue or talks about this. But there's the directory from which it was loaded is where Windows looks first. Then the system directory. Then the older 16-bit system directory. Then the Windows directory. Then the current working directory. And, and that's the confusion is some people confuse the current working directory with the directory from which the application was loaded. The current working directory is, is that's the vulnerability. That's what some applications change. For example, if you were in the example I was using before with Adobe Photoshop, apparently when you open a Photoshop object, for whatever reason, the logic inside Photoshop sets the current working directory sort of on the fly to the directory where that object was loaded. And so the, the concern is that a bad guy could cause, could put a, like a Photoshop object in email with a remote location, something available by WebDAV, for example, over the internet. Your email, and so what happened would be if you attempt to open it, Photoshop is invoked because it's a Photoshop object that you're attempting to open, Photoshop would change the current working directory to that remote location. And also located there would be a DLL named the same as something that Photoshop was then going to load in order to handle the specific details of the object that you're opening. And that's the way that bad guys have now figured out they can sneak executable code into Windows. The The reason this is a a serious concern is it, it it isn't technically a Windows mistake. That is, it's the way Windows has always operated. Some applications, uh, unfortunately thousands of applications, but, you know, out of millions. So some applications have have adopted the practice, for whatever reason, of changing their working directory to the same location from which they're loading a, the, some object, a picture or, or, or whatever. So, so, so this is not a defect that Microsoft arguably should change, and it's not one they even can change, because to change it, is a is a too large of a sweeping effect it it could it would probably break things so so what microsoft has done is they've given us a tool to to dramatically mitigate the consequences that is it's really unlikely that you actually want photoshop to go get code from some remote location where you have told it you want to open an object. You can imagine that you might want to open an object, some some you know Photoshop drawing or something from some remote location. But 
it's hard to see why you would why you would act actively want them to go get code from there. So yet they so, build in the capability. So yes, actually, it it, it was sort of it's a sort of a side effect. Uh-huh. It wasn't ever it wasn't built in. It just wasn't built out. And so okay. so what this does is this does allow you. By setting this registry setting to two, and by the way, that's not the default. If you if you just update with this Microsoft security fix, nothing changes. The the you need to then go and add this registry entry either yourself or then you use the Microsoft Fix It tool to do that for you, which is probably what I would recommend because it's just going to do it for you. And then I don't think anyone will see a negative consequence i don't think it'll break anything it seems very unlikely and and again since what 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 adobe and all these other people probably expect is the current working directory is the same as the execution directory well windows always looks in the in the directory where the application loaded from first. And that's typically where all of the DL, all of like sort of the add-on DLLs are going to be clustered around in the same directories where the application ran from, which is why um, the Windows probably finds this in the first place it looks. Um, and so um, anyway, that's the, that, that's the, the update on this. I think it it at this point, given that we're now seeing exploits in the wild, as was expected, that nothing is going to come along in the future to fix this for us, that this is probably what everyone ought to do at this point, is take some some responsibility for this. And now the problem is, I wonder, how the rest of the world is going to find out about this. I mean, you know, we cover it here on Security Now. We've known about it from the beginning. But this is important enough that I, I I don't know what Microsoft's going to do. Maybe if they feel comfortable enough with this change, they'll just end up adding it into one of the monthly security updates. That is, they'll not only add this patch, but also set the registry for people who don't already have it set, just as a as a preventative. Although you can imagine how reticent Microsoft's going to be to to change the way Windows works, because that's what this does. This changes long-standing, 20-year-old behavior from, you know, Windows, you know, 3.1 or probably 2.0. So, um, but I, I think it's important to do at this point. Okay. And then the other bit of news is we have now seen the appearance of the first robust, successful 64-bit Windows rootkit. Um, there is a rootkit called TDL3, which used to be called Aluron, A-L-U-R-E-O-N. And we talked about this some months ago, I guess earlier this year, because there was, after one of Microsoft's standard second Tuesday of the month patches, a bunch of people were finding that their systems were crashing. And and I'm sure I remember talking about it. It was like, okay, what's going on? Well, what we discovered was that those systems that were crashing had an unknown, previously undetected rootkit already resident in them. So actually it was a good thing that these things 
crashed because what happened was the rootkit was assuming absolute locations of Microsoft's code in specific components of Windows. With this particular security update that Microsoft just pushed out innocently, those particular locations changed. Well, the rootkit didn't realize that when the Windows had been updated, it was still using the previous locations, which no longer functioned and brought the whole system to its knees. So then what Microsoft did was, once this they figured out what was going on, that these, these systems were crashing because of this updated Windows technology that was, that was interacting with rootkits, they added, they basically pulled back that update from their from their updates because they didn't want to keep crashing people's machines they added rootkit specific rootkit technology to this particular security patch and then pushed it back out so that it would look for this rootkit and then be smart about removing the rootkit or not installing itself if the rootkit was present so so this rootkit has been around for a while but it has not been able to infect 64-bit Windows installations. And this is significant. That is the fact that it's now able to do that because, and we've talked about this also in the past, Microsoft really threw down the gauntlet with 64-bit Windows. Whereas moving the security of 32-bit Windows dramatically ahead has always been a problem because of, it needing you know it increasing security means breaking things so for example kernel level hooking well firewalls personal firewalls anti uh, you know anti malware um uh antivirus utilities many things have been making changes benign beneficial to the user changes to the kernel code in order to hook themselves in to Windows, as Microsoft has been moving forward from XP, where this is possible, into Vista, and then into Windows 7, they've been incrementally sort of tightening the screws on these practices, notifying people that this is going to be going away in the future, so stop doing it, and also, give, and importantly, giving people alternative means, which is, you know, there. it's not that people wanted to be hooking the kernel, it's that there, there was no choice. Microsoft hadn't published, for example, a clean way of getting at low-level packet traffic in the Internet connection. So vendors had no choice but to go in and modify deep-level components of Windows in order to have an opportunity, for example, to scan incoming Internet traffic before it reached the more tender underbelly of Windows where it could start doing some damage. So Microsoft has been adding the necessary features in order to help people play by the rules. Well, they did something very different with the 64-bit Windows since there, since there wasn't an, you know, any Windows 64 prior to its relatively recent introduction. Microsoft said from day one, there will be no kernel patching. From day one, we're going to force all drivers to be digitally signed. And so, so what this did was 
this made Windows 64, the 60, you know, the 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 X64 version of Windows much more secure from its first release because they'd painfully learned all of these lessons as they've been moving their 32-bit product forward, wishing they could make it more secure, but unable to because of the legacy that that they would be breaking if they did. With 64 bits, they said, we're starting from, from the beginning. Since there is no legacy there, everything has to be digitally signed and absolutely no patching. And we've talked about the so-called kernel patch protection, which Microsoft calls patch guard, which prevents any of this hooking of the kernel. Well, those two things, the enforcement, absolute enforcement of signed drivers and patch guard without exception. I mean, you can't turn it off. You can't get around it. It's just always been there, hard-coded, deeply wired into 64-bit windows. It's made those systems invulnerable to rootkits until now. And the way the rootkit got around this is a lesson in security for us. It hooks the master boot record. It hooks the boot sector of the hard drive and installs it, its own code in, um, on the, in some location on the hard drive that allows it to execute from the first moment the system starts to boot, essentially getting into the system before Windows. Now, we've seen this before in a, again, in a benign way. That's what TrueCrypt does in order to provide whole drive encryption, in order to encrypt the, the Windows boot drive, it has, to be, it has to be able to decrypt the first data that comes from the drive. Well, the only way to do that is if, it's, if TrueCrypt is installed prior to Windows starting to read itself from the drive. So, so this, it's, it's a great example of a... A clever approach, which can be used benignly, but unfortunately can also be hooked by a rootkit in order to cause, in order to raise some havoc, which is what this thing is doing. So, so that exists now, um, and I guess what we're going to then see is some sort of round of protection of some sort. It'll be interesting to see what Microsoft does because, I mean, when you get in before Windows. You get in before Windows. You're running before Windows has any chance to do anything. So um, I'm not sure what the consequence will be. There are BIOSes which allow you to to physically protect the boot sector from changes because boot sector viruses have been around for you know as long as hard drives have been. You know the the concept of a virus modifying the boot sector is not new, um, and consequently some BIOSes prevent that. Although that's even a relatively weak protection because the BIOS used to to protect it by by looking at your use of the BIOS for accessing the hard drive. And now contemporary systems don't go through the BIOS. They access the hard drive directly. So it's not clear to me that it's even feasible to ask the BIOS to protect us. I don't know who's going to protect us. So it'll be interesting. Maybe the drivers can change so that they will refuse to write to the drive. 
then the the bad guys will write to the hardware directly of you know circumventing the driver. I mean, this is a this is a fundamental problem in the architecture of our systems. I don't know what we're going to do. Hmm. Not good. Yeah. 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 <sighs> so. I did have a fun story to share. Actually, it was when I was going through my mailbag, the, the security news um, uh, for uh, pulling the Q&A today. Something caught my eye, uh, a subject line that said, Spinrite saves the pepperoni. <laughs> okay. Which is not something you hear every day. <laughs> is there a pizza involved? Uh, well, Doug J., I, that's all how that's how I refer to him. Oh, he does say Johnson here. So Doug Johnson in Provo, Utah, wrote. He said, "Steve, yesterday, the two other owners of a company that creates restaurant management software and I had just finished the last installation and training of our system in a new market for a national pizza chain. So this is a big nationwide pizza chain." In celebration, we had just sat down to a nice dinner and placed our order when we got a phone call from a very horrified IT director of the restaurant's parent company. On her way out of town, she was stopping by all the restaurants to connect the USB cables of the UPS, the uninterruptible power supplies, to all the servers. And the previous 12 had worked perfectly. But when she plugged in the last one, <clears throat> number 13, the server crashed and refused to come back up. It wouldn't even attempt to power back on. And this was just minutes before their dinner rush. They were completely unable to process orders electronically or accept credit card payments right as they were about to get bombarded with customers. After we hurried to finish our dinner, we rushed to the restaurant. When we arrived, the server indeed would not even power on. After figuring that there might be a cabling problem, I disconnected all the cables from the box, gave it a minute to rest, plugged in the power and network cables, and pushed the power button. It powered on and, apparent, and appeared to try to boot. But it wasn't visible on the network after the hard drive activity had settled down. So we found a monitor and keyboard and plugged them in, only to discover that it was blue screening on boot. Neither the last known good configuration option nor the safe boot mode options would allow it to come up. Something was very wrong. Because the setup was still new, we hadn't yet provisioned our off-site backup server for them. So the only copy of their order, financial, and employee data was on that box. We had to get it back. Oh, man. And they didn't have a backup. Nope. Hadn't no, gotten you know, it. They, they were going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> for crying out loud. All right, go ahead. At this point, I figured I was dealing with a corrupted installation of Windows, but I didn't have any installation media with me to attempt to repair. All any of us had was our master server image file, which, if restored, would wipe out all their data. Right. I had to come up with another solution. I did have my copy of Spinrite. I popped it in, set it to level two, and let it run. Just a couple of minutes into the scan, it found a bad sector on the hard drive and started the process of data recovery. It took a couple of minutes, so that would have been the Dynastat, uh, actual, you know, 
physical sector data recovery procedure that Spinrite drops into. It took a couple of minutes, but Spinrite was able to recover every bit of data from the bad sector. After Spinrite finished, I rebooted the machine, and after running CheckDisk, it came up right as if nothing had ever happened. No data was lost. The owners of my company were astonished that I was able to get the server back up without reinstalling Windows. And the company's IT director was very relieved that her actions hadn't led to the <laughs> store's data being lost. I'd fire her right away. <laughs> yeah. He says, Spinrite absolutely saved the day. Thank you for creating an absolutely indispensable product. And Doug, thank you for the report. And sure why, why a business would have financial data unbacked up for even four seconds. Well, they were going to get to that tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. So. It's always tomorrow, isn't it? <laughs> All right, we got uh, nine questions and nine great answers from Steve Gibson coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, though, this would actually be a really apropos time uh-huh. <laughs> to tell that IT director, if you want to keep your job, CarbonitePro.com for crying out loud. Oh, man. Small business backup done right. You know, Carbonite talked to its customers. Carbonite makes a great consumer solution we talk about all the time. They talked to their customers. They found out a goodly number, like several hundred thousand, were using Carbonite Consumer to back up business computers. Onesie, twosie, you know, because it's one computer, one Carbonite account. So they said, well, we, we really ought to do something for small business. This is it. Carbonite Pro. We use it. Love it. You will love it, too. A single account backs up all the computers in your office even remote office, as many desks as you want. There is no per-user charge. You simply pay for the data storage you use. And I'll tell you, we priced out, you know, doing it, rolling our own uh, on, uh, on an S3 instance or something like that, and there's nothing more affordable or more effective than Carbonite Pro. Just take a look at it. Uh, let's say you've got eight users, each of them with five gigabytes of data. So that's a total of 40 gigabytes of storage, 25 bucks a month. How much would it be, how much is it worth if you lost all that employee data, all that customer data? What would that cost your business? Would you even be in business tomorrow? No charge for individual computers or servers, no setup fee, no hardware to buy, no costly training. You, it just works. You've got a central dashboard that allows you to monitor and see how Carbonite Pro is working. Make sure your systems are getting back up. I love this, too. Individual users, if you turn this on, can restore their own files so no more do you have to do the perp walk. And I've done it before where you have to walk down to IT and say, um, I deleted that PowerPoint that I was supposed to give this afternoon. Could you restore that like right now? You could do it yourself. And Carbonite is secure. Files are encrypted before they leave your computer, transmitted using SSL. State-of-the-art data center technology protects your data against service interruption or backup failure. And it's automatic so your staff doesn't have to remember there's no, oh, we were going to do that tomorrow. It's always being backed up. Try it free right now for 30 days. I always believe in trying before you buy, although I know you're going to want to, you're really going to want this. Just go to CarbonitePro.com and start your free trial. Windows XP, Vista, or 7, 32 and 64-bit. Windows Server 2003, 2008. It does not support older versions of Windows Linux or Mac yet. So, but most, I mean, most, most cases, you know, you're using that. By the way, uh, there is a free iPhone app, so you can look at your files that you've downloaded. I believe there's a BlackBerry app, too. You can get your files anywhere. I mean, I can go on and on and on. And because this is Carbonite Pro, it does support external drives, servers, and all of that. Carbonite. 
Pro.com. Try it free for 30 days. And I don't want to hear, oh, we were going to do that tomorrow. <laughs> I know, Steve, this might slow down your sales of Spinrite, but actually it won't. <laughs> it absolutely will not. Because there's always somebody, isn't there? All right, let's get to our questions. Are you ready, sir? Let's do it. Let's do it. Question one comes to us from Tom Sullivan in Indiana. Feedback from our DLL Hell episode. Steve, there's nothing particularly difficult about the new Microsoft patch. You install the patch, which enables the use of new registry. We're talking about, uh, is this the LNK uh, issue? No, uh, this is the DLL sequence deal that we we talked about at the top of the show. Right, right. where, where, Where Windows is loading from a remote directory when it. it really shouldn't be. So uh, he says you install the patch. That enables the use of the new registry entries to control the DLL search path system. It's, in effect, changing the path, right? Right. Without the patch, the registry entry is not recognized. So, you know, after the system is patched, you can both globally restrict DLL searching. You can also restrict it by application by using appropriate registry entries. So that would protect you against the Photoshop uh, flaw? Exactly. A few programs will actually need to get a DLL from the current directory as opposed to their own execution directory. For any that do on startup, you simply set the shortcut, the .lnk file, to start in the directory wherein the program's exe is stored. So that's simple. I mean, it's going to take a little IT setup here. However, it's clear that if a program like Photoshop changes its current directory, then it won't need to find DLLs from there. Overall, this seems like a safe patch. I've set mine to... Uh, two globally, that's the most secure setting, and have yet to have any problems with XP or Windows 7, says Tom. Yeah, there actually is, There, I didn't mention this at the top of the show, there is a more restrictive setting than two. You can set it to uh, to hex FFFFFFFF, that is all Fs, and Microsoft documents this on that knowledge base page. What that does is is, whereas, for example, the setting of two restricts the loading of DLLs so that the it will so the windows will not load them from any remote folder either web web dav or a a remotely located shared folder um, you can go one step further with this all f's in hex which technically is negative 1 in in you know in signed uh, two's complement binary math um, which again, Microsoft documents, and what that does is absolutely removes the current working directory from the sequence altogether, so that nothing will load from the current working directory. And so that's that's a little stronger than two. I think since the danger is really only from remotely located code, you could argue that if something has already got the code on your system and has figured out how to yeah, run it well you're, you're in trouble pro- already. probably in trouble anyway yeah, so yeah. so i did want to i did want to encourage again people from or encourage them to uh install this update set it to two i don't think any will anyone will have any trouble and you as I, tom mentions and i forgot to mention this also you can per- perform a per program override so if, if you learned after a few days that something that you were using did deliberately need to load code from a remote location then you're able to to have a global setting which is used by default and but then per application tweaks so you could like set windows back to the normal behavior 
only for specific applications. So Microsoft, you know, gave us a good tool, but we do have to use it. And I don't think it's going to be used by default, so it's important. Do you recommend FFFFFFFFFFF? Yeah, I used two. I'm tempted now to switch to FFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFF
a hosts file on each of those hundred different machines on what would eventually grow into the internet. That was DNS. Which, That's which how it worked. Exactly. It was just one local, <laughs> one one non-hierarchical, simple file where you had machine names that matched the IP addresses so that people could use those instead of IP addresses. Well, that's survived to this day. And we've talked about other uses for the host file where you'd want to, for example, intercept your computer. If you, for example, put doubleclick.net in there and and had it point to, you know, 0000, zero, zero, zero or something, then your computer would be unable to go to doubleclick.net, the real one, because it would never ask anyone else for the IP. Your host file provides it first. So what occurred to me actually on the fly when we were talking about this two episodes ago was um, uh, Steve's question was, hey, you know, I get this certificate mismatch error because I want to talk to my own router, even though it's in the same room with him, he wants to talk to it over Wi-Fi and over SSL, and we were and, he, and we were saying, wait a minute, you know, don't, doesn't he have WPA encryption? And he says, yes, I do. But what if I'm reconfiguring things and I want to drop my Wi-Fi encryption? I'd still like my connection to the router to be encrypted. And so he was saying the problem was that he had to type in. HTTPS colon slash slash 192.168.1.1. Well, the browser would complain because he was creating a secure connection because the certificate that Linksys has is, is the word Linksys. So the browser sees that what he entered in the address bar doesn't match the certificate. And of course, this also comes back to STS strict transport security that we've been talking about because as soon as you start turning on strict transport security certificate mismatches are no longer click aroundable you can't say oh yes that's fine i know that it's mismatching secure strict transport security will absolutely tolerate no variations from everything working so what occurred to me was if you if you made a mapping a, essentially a, an entry in the host file where you said Linksys is at 192.168.1.1, not Linksys.com, just the word Linksys, then now using your browser, using SSL, HTTPS colon slash slash, you put in Linksys your and hit enter. Your computer looks in the host file first, finds the IP, connects to it, and then the browser now sees that the, the certificate name, Linksys, matches what you entered in the URL field, no more error, and you're connected. So it, it ends up being a really cool little hack. It's a, lot of a lot of routers come uh, with a URL. In other words, I can't remember what it is exactly, but I've seen routers before where you don't have to enter the number. You type... Uh, I think it's Linksys that does that. Well, and the way they could do that is if the router was providing DNS, that is, uh, if the router was providing DNS or even intercepting DNS, remember that the router is where your computer ha traffic has to go after 
it does if it doesn't find an entry in the host file, then your 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 system says, "Oh, I got to make a DNS query." So it it formats a DNS query and sends it up the up the wire to whatever your DNS is. Many routers now have assigned themselves as and we've talked about this before, they've assigned themselves as your network's DNS server. Right. So that allows them to say, "Oh, he's asking you know, a special he domain name. Page. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so then the router is able to send back one, its own IP, which is kind of cool because it knows its own IP. See, this this little hack that we just mentioned would break if you change the router's gateway IP because then right. it would no longer be at 1.1, yet your host's file would say, it would still say 1.1. So you'd have to edit the host file entry also. So having the router sort of provide its own little funky DNS um, allows you to always access it transparently, which is uh, also nice. Chat room's telling me that uh, Netgear does that uh, with uh, routerlogin.net. Mm. I don't think that's a good way to do it, because what if somebody wanted routerlogin.net? I well, mean, maybe that domain name is gone. Yeah, it's right? gone. You can never, you get, could never get to the real one, because the router would intercept it. Presumably, Netgear registered that domain and, and keeps it around. That we, we would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> if not, then I'm sorry that you own routerlogin.net. Uh, I don't. I think that's not a good way to do it. I think the host file is a much better way to do it. But obviously, they can't expect people to edit their host file. Well, and the host file is universal. I mean, right, all of everybody. our listeners could do it if right. they wanted to. You'd have to do it on every machine that you were going to log in from. Actually, there's a way that a host's file can have a pointer to other host files. Ah. There is the, the, that that provision exists, so you could have one master host file for your whole network, and the other systems all point to it. So you only have to change it one location. So that would be, so I have a canonical host file on one machine that's never turned off, and that, right. that machine's always uh, got it. And everybody else, everybody else's host file goes there in order what to a look good up. Idea. What a good idea! Question three: Brandon Ivy in San Jose, California, wonders whether his college is spying on him. Hi, Steve. In order to gain Internet access at the college I attend, Kyle Poly SLO, the first requirement is every student has to first install a custom certificate. Mm. I remember years back you were talking about SSL and the few ways that companies could spy if they wanted to on their employees. Is this certificate a sure sign that the higher-ups are seeing everyone's passwords to PayPal banks and the like? Smart kid, Brandon. Yeah, um, this I would imagine that it's being done for a for a benign reason because uh, Cal Poly probably wants to be able to provide filtering technology. They want to they want to be able to prevent people from going to sites using their network that Cal Poly policy says they shouldn't. On the other hand, this absolutely does mean that. Your browser is connecting to Cal Poly and your traffic is being decrypted and then re-encrypted by Cal, hopefully re-encrypted by Cal Poly when it goes back out. You can absolutely verify that and by looking at the certificate when you make a secure connection. Make, make a secure connection to anywhere. <coughs> Excuse me. Amazon.com grc.com whatever make a secure connection and then look at your browser at that web pages the, the web page that's delivered look at its security credentials and see whether you can see the chain goes back to 
like GRC is signed by VeriSign. See if you see that or see if GRC seems is signed by Cal Poly, which would indicate that Cal Poly generated a certificate on the fly for GRC.com in order to satisfy this requirement we were just talking about of G, the certificate matching what's up in the URL bar. If so, that confirms that you actually don't have uh, SSL connections directly to the endpoint. That because of this policy, that I'm sure it's in the fine print of your student agreement somewhere, um, they said this is you know what we're going to do. In order to use our network, you got to accept our certificate. And, and the consequences are that. Would you have to always have a custom certificate to intercept SSL traffic like that? Yeah, in order not to, you know, the only the if you didn't generate a custom certificate on the fly, then any site you went to would complain about a certificate mismatch. Right. So you're constantly having to be clicking through that, and so this fakes out the 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 certificate the browser is expecting by generating one on the fly. And our next question bears on this too. Well, let's go to it. <laughs> question four: David in Utah noticed. That Net Nanny, uh-huh. which is uh, you know filtering software to protect your kids, installs itself as drum roll please a root certificate authority. We got the Net Nanny because my wife wants to help the whole family not be exposed to porn. <laughs> I think that's a euphemism for him, but okay. I didn't realize it for a while, but after installing it, I discovered that I that it is the one issuing all the certs. Oh, jeez, Louise. Uh huh. Uh, whenever I connect to my bank or HTTPS colon GRC.com, I recall a podcast saying this is a way for employers to spy on their employees. Shouldn't I be worried that Content Watch Incorporated, the creators of NetNanny, could see all my bank data and probably LastPass passwords? Wow. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that David should be worried, but David should know that it's possible. And that's what this means. Is when if with Net Nanny or anything else similar, which requires that you put a you put it you install it as a certificate authority in your browser. That's that's exactly what what San Louis did uh, for our our prior question. What that means is that your browser will now trust. Just as it trusts certificates signed by VeriSign and GoDaddy and Equifax and everybody, all the other hundreds of certificate authorities, it will now trust certificates signed by Content Watch Inc., the publishers of NetNanny. Well, the consequence of that, if you've got this NetNanny software installed wherever it goes, in, in the computer or in some central location anywhere... That means that that Net Nanny is exactly as is, is as is San Luis Obispo's network, Cal Poly's network. Um, that Net Nanny is on the fly generating certificates, handing them to your browser, and the browser says, "Huh, this thing was signed by Content Watch. Do we trust them?" So looks in its certificate store, sees that sure enough, look at that Content Watch Inc. Is a certificate is a recognized certificate authority for this browser signed this certificate, so we trust it. And so, again, once again, the reason NetNanny is doing this, the reason that software is doing it, is so that it can filter SSL connections. That is, it can decrypt it, 
scan it for, apparently in this case, pornography, and then re-encrypt it when it goes outside the network. So it's the only way to provide that service is this on-the-fly decryption of SSL connections. Unfortunately, that's a lot of responsibility for Content Watch to take and something that users need to be aware of. Yeah. There's probably a legitimate reason. Well, legitimate. It's probably part of the functionality that it does that. I mean, uh, I would imagine in order to filter content and to keep an eye on content, it probably needs to do some pretty draconian things. Yeah, you know, I would wonder if there wasn't a way of backing it off of that. That is, Mm. like, say, just uncheck the I want you to filter my SSL connections box from NetNanny. I don't. I've never seen NetNanny. I don't know whether it offers that option. But, boy, you know. Um, uh, That's one of the reasons I like OpenDNS. It's not nearly so intrusive. You don't modify your system at all except for changing your DNS entries to point to OpenDNS. There's no, certifi- they don't, there's no certificate or anything like that, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, in and fact, it works. I just, I've just spent the last uh, week adding DNS rebinding detection uh, to the GRC's DNS benchmark, which will be out excellent. Soon. So and, we'll, we'll know and, if that happens. And yes, and Open DNS is uh, is doing that, and we now are able to detect that on the fly. So it's very cool. That's not a bad thing, right? No, it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. it, it's providing it's providing that it's yes, detecting. It's a nice, it. Yeah, yeah, nice feature. Yeah. Philippe Lariche suggests that we shouldn't blame von Neumann. Oh, this goes back to uh, something, and I wish I could. I never did find the article that says that really the the security flaws in the world began because of uh, the nature of a von Neumann machine. Steve, I think you should put Leo Wright on the von Neumann architecture as the root of all evil. <laughs> Without it, it would be impossible to write a general purpose operating system. After all, how could you ever compile a program or load it into memory for execution except by treating it temporarily as data? The Manchester architecture with its separate instruction and data address spaces is fine for single-task computers like microcontrollers and embedded systems, but isn't much use for general-purpose computing. The big mistake was probably not von Neumann's, but Microsoft's. The x86 architecture does provide you with a virtual ah, Manchester architecture and user space having separate code data and stack segments and no means of writing to the code segment or executing instructions from the data or stack segments. But as far as I can tell, the execution model used by Windows throws that advantage away by making the three segments coincident. Regards, Philip. Is that true? You couldn't write an OS in the Manchester architecture? No. And and I I would take issue, I guess. I don't think that... You were wrong, Leo, to suggest that a Manchester architecture is arguably more secure. I, I would say that that it's it, it, it certainly would not prevent all the problems. So, okay, so so just to review a little bit, the 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 question is: Does data and instructions come from a shared memory space where instructions are able to to point to data and could be and since data and instructions occupy the same space the instructions could be pointing at instructions so for example when you load 
and, and we, we run across instances where this is happening. I mean, security problems all the time. You load data from the Internet, which overflows a buffer, and that data is executed by mistake, and the bad guys have cleverly designed the data to be executable. So, I mean, this is this is the buffer overflow problem that, you know, Steve Ballmer famously steams around about screaming, why can't, you know, why can't we fix these problems? Why are we still having this after all these years? That's the problem. Now, the the Manchester architecture. Physically, it it architecturally separates instructions from data so that so that even if. The instruction referred to the same address as as an instruction. It would actually be referring to a separate bank of memory, physically separate. And we discussed this once where there was the design of some voting machines, which I was really pleased to say or to see in their architecture. They were using a Manchester architecture. That is to say, instructions and data were separate. The only reason they did that was the, the designers, the architects, recognized that was more secure. And I would say absolutely yes, that's more secure. Does it solve the world's security problems? Absolutely not. Um, it is the, the case, for example, that you could still write an operating system in it. I mean, in, with that architecture... <coughs> You um, you could compile a program, save it to disk, and then load it into the instruction side. So while you were compiling the program, you'd be building the program over in the data side. But then inherently, you need to execute it. So you just save it to the disk and then load it over into the instruction side. So So everything can still be done with that architecture. I think... It's probably in retrospect too bad that we have this combined architecture, except it's so convenient. I mean, it makes so many things easy. The problem is it makes things you could argue too easy. Yeah. It makes you know security vulnerabilities just trivial to have happen by mistake. So if we had if turning back the clocks, we had we'd evolved our systems with this awareness today so that they were always separate address and data spaces, probably more secure. And and to Microsoft and Stacks, well, the problem is this data execution protection, DEP, that we talk about, it's something Microsoft would like to have always done, always had enforced, except that the hardware architecture, the Intel hardware architecture, didn't enforce it didn't didn't offer that depth that that the so-called nx the no execution bit until relatively recently and then when it came along it turns out that there is code which which either deliberately or just through laziness will not function <laughs> with that depth bit with data execution protection enforced all the time so again it's one of these things where well Due to history, we really can't enforce that even if we wanted to. We're, we're moving forward. We're trying to encourage people to clean up their code so that they can have DEP enabled because it would prevent some class of, of misconduct, some, some, some cases of misconduct. But again, 
it's also not the the cure all answer. Well, so and I'm more not, security is better. I'm not going to take any credit for this idea. I'm not smart enough to have come up with this. It came from a blog post I read uh, by Charles Strauss. He's at antipope.org. It's a great blog post, Where We Went Wrong. And uh, he, he calls it the Harvard architecture. He says, one, the von Neumann architecture triumphed over the Harvard architecture. I think Alan, wasn't Alan Turing championing the uh, Harvard architecture? I think he was. I don't remember, but you're right. And, um, Harvard is the, is the term I've normally used for yeah. it, too. Um, he also says, and we've talked about this before, number two, string handling in C uses null terminated strings rather than pointer delimited strings, which is a source of a lot of errors, which is going off the end of the string. Right. Pascal strings famously had a length byte right. as the first byte of the string, which was very convenient, except it limited you to 255 characters for the string. Right. So that was a problem. Char Charlie says, C will not only see the programming language, will not only let you shoot yourself in the foot, it will hand you a new magazine when you run out of bullets. <laughs> And and three, TCP IP lacks encryption at the IP packet level. And he said you can blame the NSA in the early 80s for this. They wanted a fundamentally insecure system. No, 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 no. no? He's, he's, wrong on, he's wrong on that one. I know history too well. That's okay. just, it just wasn't considered in the beginning. Nobody thought about it. Yeah. He also said DNA lacks authentication, which is a subcategory, but shouldn't be underestimated. And he gives his number four, the World Wide Web, which is designed for academics in a research environment, not buying for banks or somebody who wanted to be secure. It's a good post. And finally, six, <laughs> Microsoft. Sorry, he says. Let me rephrase that. Bloody Microsoft. <laughs> so it's a, it's worth reading. I, I can't claim any... Uh, any knowledge uh, in this area? I just thought it was a very interesting blog post, and that's why I, I posed the question to you uh, a couple episodes ago. Uh, thank you, Philip, though, for the uh, question. Number six, an anonymous listener in Washington State, he's worried about STS, strict transport security, token information leakage. Man, when you're paranoid, there's lots to worry about, isn't there? <laughs> Steve, I enjoyed your episode on STS, and I'm pleased with the new security offered by participating websites, but I have a couple of concerns. You mentioned that the STS tokens do not transmit anything. However, anyone who has access to the machine locally could view a user's list of STS tokens and deduce from the very recent tokens which websites a user visited. This could also be used to determine things such as what bank a person uses in order to target an attack. While a minor issue, is there a way to conceal from others which STS tokens are present on your machine? Further, in your last Q&A, somebody mentioned a self-denial-of-service attack, only for Lent, which prevents a random website from issuing a forged token for another website, thereby doing a denial-of-service to that domain. Thanks for the great show. What do you say? Okay. Um, I chose this question because it's, it's an issue that sort of, of security that comes up from time to time. And the, the issue is... We need to be clear. It's super important to be clear about what different security measures are meant to do. So strict transport security, which we discussed a couple episodes ago, its design is to force secure connections so that at no point in the connection between a user and a remote location is there 
an opportunity for non-SSL dialogue, which could leak cookies or log on credentials, username and passwords, anything that might be going in the clear. What it doesn't try to do is the things this listener is asking. That is, it's like, yes, if you look at the STS tokens in the .db file, which Firefox maintains, you'll see all the domains that have issued that browser STS tokens. In the same way, if you look at the browser's cookies, you'll see you know pretty much everywhere the person ever went. So, so cookies are a privacy problem when viewed from the end of the machine, the, you know, the, the local browser, and so is STS. I mean, there's some more information there. Token information leakage, as, as, he, as he put it. But that's not what this is trying to solve. So, so the, the reason this is important is it sort of comes up from time to time where, where there's a confusion about a specific security measure and, and what it's designed to do. And security professionals are careful and it's crucial to be really careful to to circumscribe what it is that a security measure does and make sure that's what you expect, it's what you need, and that you're not asking it to do something it wasn't designed to do. Don't overload so, it. it. Exactly. So so STS absolutely is successful at making sure that that no connection is made to an STS-enabled site that isn't over SSL and that you can't even bypass it, um, except, unfortunately, if you're using NetNanny, in which case <laughs> you, you feel all the STS is out the window because you're not going to have any security problems that STS can, that your browser can detect. So, so that's what it does. It doesn't do anything more. So again, it's I, I see these kinds of questions all the time. I want to just take a sort of a moment uh, not to pick on this anonymous listener, but it's why I, I thought it was nice that he was anonymous. So um, to say, you know, we it's you always want to be careful about what it what it is you're asking these these security measures to do because they can't do more than what they do if they're designed correctly. They do what they're designed to do perfectly and right. that's what that's the most we can hope for right well and it might be a mistake to have too much built in i mean i think we've all learned that the simpler tool that does the, the one thing well is probably the way to go yes uh question seven craig in california he's worried about his mac address hi guys i've been listening to security now for years love it i particularly enjoyed the recent episode on privacy leakage but you didn't talk about mac addresses which as i understand them are unique generally unchanging so why is that a big concern or factor of privacy or security? And I guess I would add the adjunct, well, who can see and who knows what your MAC address is? Correct. And that is, that is why it's not a concern. We've discussed this a couple times, although it's funny, the reason this caught my attention was that it turns out that over, win over Windows file sharing, Microsoft gratuitous gratuitously sends your MAC address. 
That is, as part of, of the protocol. Of course they do. I know. <laughs> and, and I built that into the into security now. It's I mean into security now into shields up. Right. In, in, from the very beginning, when people yeah, because you to, tell me your Mac my Mac address sometimes. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so there is a there is a privacy concern for people using Windows and Windows file sharing if that's turned on because. If you know, if I can see it across the internet, so can everybody else. Right. So there, there is that concern. Um, although with with file sharing closed down and firewalls running now, it should not be a problem. And in general, remember that the MAC address is used only within a LAN. It's the because the, the a MAC address is for Ethernet, not for IP. IP runs on top of Ethernet. So IP packets jump from one Ethernet network to another as they go from router to router across the Internet. IP packets are briefly wrapped in different packets with a MAC address in order to go to the next interface, the next NIC, the network interface card in an Ethernet network. Then that IP packet is unwrapped from that it goes through the router gets rewrapped in a different mac address to go out to a different network so so normally the user's mac address never survives past his own local area network unless in the weird case of 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 windows file sharing which for some reason provides that just because why not Sounds like a Perry Mason novel. The weird yeah. case of Windows file sharing. <laughs> uh, question eight. Ronald Wilson in upstate New York had a thought about side channel fingerprinting. Oh, that was a great topic from last week. If you didn't hear that episode, by the way, great. Just fascinating episode. I'd like a utility, says Ronald, that alerts me when a website pulls my browser for data. If that's even possible. For example, hey, PayPal just asked for your screen resolution, your time zone, your current system time. Is something like that possible? Perhaps even a browser info firewall that would block the information from being returned or randomize it? Well, the last week's episode, as you mentioned, Leo, which uh, caught a lot of people's attention, yeah. um, generated a ton of email. And there were a lot of questions like, well, what can I do? I mean, right. you've sort of like the, you know, painted a gloom doom scenario. Um, relative to Ron's question, the problem is that there are legitimate reasons for, for example, JavaScript reading your screen resolution. You could imagine some advanced code that Google would produce because they love JavaScript to the degree they do where if it saw that you were on like a tiny screen like a mobile browser or just like a like a restricted screen more like a laptop instead of a desktop the 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 server might have a legitimate reason for knowing not to track you in any reason but in order to do, to customize the content they're delivering for the size of screen that you have. And in fact, once upon a time, you'll remember this, Leo, the user agent field used to contain all that. The, the original early days um, browsers would embed like your screen resolution as part of the user agent information hmm. 
because they've just figured, hey, maybe the server would like to give different pages depending upon how large the user's screen was. You know, sort of change the resolution or change just the amount of content on the page right. that was delivered. So, um, and you could imagine time zone could be used nicely. For example, a server could deliberately, like say for an auction, could show you when the auction is closing in your time zone right. rather than always in the Pacific time zone like eBay does and solve or, or, or they just use UTC um, so, um, or no, I think I think eBay just always shows it in Pacific time. But it'd be nice if it showed it in, in your time zone. Well, in order to do that, it needs to know what your time zone is. So, again, there's, a, there's an arguably valid reason for, for a, a server knowing that, too. So, so, it's not that this stuff is all spy information. It's just that it's, it's stuff that you could reasonably make available, but, when, but it does provide some differentiation between you and somebody who's otherwise identical to you in a different time zone. So it provides some more info. I did have a thought about, for all the people that wrote in and asked, what do we do about this? And Leo, this is the, the kind of thing you would suggest. And that is, any of these um, CD-based uh, bootable CDs. Uh, sure. It's going to always be the same. So, you know, everyone with some Ubuntu Linux distro that they boot from CD, it's going to fire up and load, and there's a web browser. Really? And, what, and whatever it is, it's all self-contained. Huh. Every single one of them looks the same. So there's so, no individual information that the browser knows that is unique. Correct. Because you don't have any cookies on there yet. Yeah. You know, your system clock is going to be you, but, you know, that's not... That's I probably mean, not all, enough in itself. All the other stuff. All And so my point is that that everyone using that particular build, there may be some build information, there may be some browser version information that changes, but everyone using that build is going to is going to look very much the same. And so if people really were concerned about this, that's one way just to be very anonymous. And of course it's a way to be very secure too because you know you're um you have a a a self-contained environment right. which is difficult to escape from and unmodifiable. Correct. Every time you boot, clean start, Correct. clean slate. I I think more and more people should be doing that. And we did hear a rumor, uh, we don't know yet, but that Windows 8, when it comes out, will have this kind of uh, feature, this kind of restart and, and uh, reset each time as, a, as an option. Interesting. They have a... It's like steady state. Yeah. Steady state, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Our last question... Is not really a question. It's just a statement. Security Now listener Richard says, have you ever looked at OAuth... Have you ever looked, Steve? Have you really looked at OAuth in the eye? It would be a great topic for security now. By the way, great show. Keep up the good work. I'm a supporter of your work and spin right owner with no disaster tales to tell, which is a good thing. What is OAuth? And, well, it's our topic for next week. Oh, how exciting. It is a an emerging standard, which is really interesting because it's... Uh, it's had a little bit of a spotty pass. There were a couple mistakes made early on, but it is it, it is a a very intriguing means 
for providing authentication to third parties where it's not necessary for you to disclose your credentials to them, yet they can still authenticate on your behalf. Um, This has been in the news in the last couple of weeks because Twitter officially stated that they're going to be requiring all of the Twitter apps like uh, Seismic right. and and Twitter Deck or Tweet Deck and all these different things. They're standardizing on OAuth. They flipped and, that switch August thirty first. Yeah. Yep. If you and, if you don't use OAuth, which and, is right and, because we were giving you know some third party our yeah. our login credentials. Yes, and and that's just not a safe thing to do. They could perform any mischief they wanted to. Right. And, and Twitter users may have noted, for example, there were so sometimes if they were using OAuth, they would, they would be taken sort of like back to Twitter where you would then say, yes, I want to allow this application to, to operate on my behalf. And then Twitter would maintain a list of things that you had authenticated and you were able to revoke that authentication anytime you chose never having to disclose your credentials and never having them disclosed to that application. We're going to explain next week how that magic is possible. Very sweet. Oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm a big OAuth fan. You know, Google just announced that you can use uh, OpenID, which is, a, I guess, kind of related to OAuth, to, to create a Google account, which means you can use your Yahoo account to create your new Google account. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was funny. And, of course, you can use your YubiKey with uh, yeah. OpenID. Of course you yeah. can, yeah. Steve Gibson is the man at GRC.com. In fact, you should go to GRC.com, not only to take a look at Spinrite, the world's best hard drive and maintenance utility, uh, I use it all the time, recovery and maintenance utility. But also his free stuff like Shields Up, which we just talked about, uh, Decombobulator, Shoot the Messenger. And if you're a fan of the show, we've got every episode, all 265 of them, online there. You can download each and every one and listen, both in the full 64-kilobit version as well as a 16-kilobit version for people who want to save bandwidth. There are transcriptions, too. Uh, is it every show? I think you did go back, didn't you? Every show every from show. the beginning. Yep. Uh, all of that is available at grc.com. Steve is also on... Go ahead. I was going to say that the, the transcripts make all of this content searchable, too, which is very valuable for people who go, I, you know, when did they mention something could, about that? Yeah, well, you, you could find yeah. it. You could search it on his page or even on Google. Yep. Which is nice. Steve's on the Twitter. SGGRC is his, <laughs> is his Twitter handle. Uh, if you want to follow his iPad musings or tablet musings, and I, actually I bet you there are going to be some more now that the, there are many more tablets on the way. Uh, wow. SGPad. And the corporate account is Gibson Research. All at Twitter.com. Steve, thanks so much for being here. I'm rebooting my Mac now. So now that the show's over so I can, put the, I can install the updates. Me too. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.